You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Brunswick, Maine. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are some highlights from this week's program. How do you modify things and keep people going while they get to that goal? And then the other part is, okay, if you've had an injury, how do we get you back? The knee is just the unfortunate joint that is stuck between the feet and the hips. (laughs) Healthy knees are an important part of staying active. Known as hinge joints, they keep us walking, running, pivoting, shifting, and bounding upstairs. Today, we speak with orthopedic surgeon and sports medicine specialist, Dr. Link Avery, and with Dr. Kirsten Buchanan and Matt Kraft of the University of New England Physical Therapy Department about the newest happenings in the area of knee injury prevention. Thank you for joining us. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Apothecary by Design. There was a time when the apothecary was a place where you could get safe, reliable medicines prepared by experienced professionals with a focus on you and your unique health concerns. Apothecary by Design is built around the forgotten notion that you don't just need your prescriptions filled. You need attention, advice, and individual care. Visit their website, apothecarybydesign.com, or drop by the store at 84 Marginal Way in Portland and experience pharmacy care the way that it's meant to be. And by the Rooms family of restaurants, who are hosting their third annual New Year's Eve charity gala at Boone's Fish House. The evening starts with a prefix menu in front of the fireplace with live jazz, then kicks into high gear upstairs from 9 p.m. till 1 a.m. with music by the Jason Spooner Band. Special giveaways all evening and your enjoyment will help raise money to feed hungry children in Maine through Full Plate's Full Potential. Last year, the rooms raised $10,000, and this year, they want you to help them beat that number. Call 207-774-5725 for reservations. Have fun this New Year's Eve by giving back. This next individual is um, a friend of mine that I've known for a little while, and I guess first I knew him as my surgeon. He is Dr. Lincoln Avery. I call him Link, an orthopedic surgeon at Maine Medical Partners Orthopedics and Sports Medicine. He is the division leader of sports medicine. Thanks so much for coming in and talking to me today. Well, it's nice to meet you here, Lisa. And thanks for fixing my knee all those years ago. It's nice to see you're not limping too much. Yeah, right. Well, I know that's always the thing. If you're the person who does the fixing and then the person breaks again, then, you know, it kind of makes you not look quite as good at your job, right? Exactly. Yeah. But but I'm not limping. My knee has worked perfectly fine. Um, so I'm interested in talking to you about knees and in part, I know that this is one of your specialties is the knee, in part because it's it really has been, it can be very disabling for people. Um, in my line of work, and I'm talking mo- more older people, when I try to get people to be active and they say, well, I want to be active, but I have this knee injury and I can't do a lot of um, walking, never mind running, we can't even get to that next level of fitness. We can't even get to just the basic level of wellness. And some of these injuries started when they were younger. And that's kind of where you come in. You can actually help people with their wellness by helping stave off some problems as they get older. Yeah, I mean, you know, there's a full range. You can have, you know, a very common scenario I see are people that come in uh, middle-aged, they're very heavy, and they're trying to lose weight because obviously they're working on their overall wellness, and the first thing they do is start to jog or go for long walks, and because they're heavy, their knees wear out sooner, and now you've got a bad knee and you're heavy and you can't exercise, and, you know, they 
see someone who's a surgeon says, okay, you need to lose weight and do this, this, and that, and they're saying, well, how am I supposed to do that? So some of it is how do you modify things and keep people going while they get to that goal? And then the other part is, okay, if you've had an injury, how do we get you back as good, if not better, than before? And very often we can get you back better um, to let you get back to those activities that you love doing. I have a special interest in not only because I had my own knee issues, but in the knee because my daughter had an ACL tear when she was in high school, and she went through this enormous rehab process. And now they're doing work with ACL prevention, ACL rupture prevention. And I like where this is going. I like that we're actually getting to the kids before they end up having these catastrophic, potentially, let's call it career ending, even though they're in high school, um, but definitely life impacting kind of injury. Talk to me about that. Well, you know, it, it's really interesting because there was a real epidemic of female greater than male ACL tears. And, you know, if you look back 10 years ago, particularly in basketball, basketball was like um, 10 to 1 female versus male. Um, soccer was twice as much. I mean, there were sports where women were clearly getting injured, tearing ACLs specifically. And so, you know, everyone started to research this and going, oh, is it because their hips are wider, or is it hormonal changes, or different center of balance, et cetera, et cetera. And there are all sorts of theories, and it looks like what's happened is that it's a neuromuscular control issue, and partly related to the, the width of the pelvis that women have over men, but that their hips are weak, and so that they set up bad biomechanics. And what you're referring to is that there's a program where you can actually prophylactically treat athletes um, to use their knee in a correct biomechanical way that drastically in the order of 80 90 percent decreases the risk of an ACL tear and it bec it can become motor memory and and obviously very very effective and, and preventative so where did this epidemic come from I'm assuming that it's not like there's something different about biomechanics that shifted over the last so many years. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you look around, what are some of the things that are different versus when, um, well, when I was growing up as a kid? Um, number one is much greater female participation. And number two is sports are starting earlier. And, um, you know, uh, particularly families are really devoting themselves to having their child get often year round coaching and experience in one sport to really focus on that. So um, the level of injuries are harder and higher for that age group than they were 10 years ago. And we've got a greater mix of female athletes. So as I'm thinking about my own, my own daughter um, who had her ACL injury, she had her injury in lacrosse, but she's a three season athlete. She was also a soccer player and a swimmer. So she wasn't, we didn't have her doing, except for swimming, which shouldn't have an impact on the knee, we didn't have her doing the same sport year round. Um, but her father had an ACL injury. Is, does genetics ever play a part? We're not really aware of that, that there's an ACL tearing gene at this point, no. Well, I think about, um, I think about knees in general because you know, they are this, this big hinge joint. You can, you can kind of injure your hip and get away with it. If you injure your foot, you can be put on crutches for a little while. But you can limp around quite a long time on a bad knee and just keep doing damage on top of damage on top of damage. What has your experience been with this? 
Well, you know, as you said, the, the knee is a very vulnerable joint. I mean, it's in the middle of these two long lever arms, so it's exposed. It doesn't have a lot of bony protection. It's all soft tissue holding it together. So between leverage or contact, it's very often the first thing to go. Um, but because it's a weight-bearing joint and, you know, hips and knee and feet injuries are, you know, can be just as debilitating. They're just not as dramatic because when someone limps in and they can't move their leg, you can see it across the room. Um, but you really need, you know, that 98, 100% of your knee to really be competitive. And so um, it seems to be a very sensitive joint in terms of what it can tolerate and what it can't tolerate. It also seems in the patients that I care for that weight has a tremendous impact on the knee and even fluctuation of 10 pounds or so can can change the way that somebody experiences perhaps an old injury. Yeah, that's really true. I mean, it comes down to basic biomechanics. Um, these muscles are pulling at well over body weight loads to make these legs work. And if, for example, going up and down stairs, you put three to five times your body weight across your kneecap. So if you're 20 pounds overweight, that's 100 pounds more than a little kneecap that's only the size of a half dollar seeing across the whole contact area. So weight, weight is a huge thing. And very often I've had patients that, you know, it sounds easy, lose 20 pounds, but if they're 250 and they get down to 230 and they say, you know what, I can, my knee feels better already, you know, and very often that's motivating and, and really makes them not only hang in there, but take it to the next level in terms of what they're doing to drop their weight and get more active. When we think of surgeons, um, and I actually have to talk my patients through this often because when I say, I'd like to refer you to a, an orthopedic surgeon, they automatically believe that I'm sending them towards the knife. But that is not true. What you're describing is let's not have somebody go through surgery unless you absolutely need to. Let's try everything to get you to a place of better biomechanics before we go that route. Absolutely. I mean, that's part, you know, yes, I'm an orthopedic surgeon, but I'm specialized in sports medicine. Sports medicine isn't just sports medicine surgery. It's preventative medicine. Um, it's performance medicine in terms of how can you make someone who isn't injured achieve a better level with sports. I mean, these are all aspects of sports medicine. The sports medicine program at Maine Medical Center actually came to be just after I went through my own residency with the family medicine program. And it is affiliated with the family medicine program, which I find interesting because um, it's, an, it's kind of acknowledging that primary care doctors do have sort of a touch point within the sports medicine field. And you're working with family practice doctors and primary care providers as you're providing sports medicine care. Oh, yes. Um, I mean, Bill Dexter has been around for 20 years with the family medicine sports program, and he and I have literally moved into the same house at this point because of that interaction. I mean, we both are trying to get patients better, uh, not necessarily with surgery, but you know, with hands-on care, modification, physical therapy, medications, all sorts of new biologics that are being done in terms of injections and other treatments. So surgery is clearly the last resort. Now, there are times where it's very obvious that it's the only way to go with a dramatic injury. You know, as you said, an athlete with an ACL tear, uh, there's no studies that really say you're going to do very well with that bracing or whatever if you want to stay the same level. But anything we can do to prevent surgery and to get people functional um, is clearly the right way to go. With ACLs, there is the possibility that if somebody doesn't want to uh, return to, say, a high level of play, if they don't want to go back to being a skier, 
you, you could decide not to repair an ACL if it wasn't completely ruptured, is that right? In that case, yes. I mean, the ACL is a stabilizer for sports that require plant and pivot, changing direction quickly activities, jumping down on the knee, decelerating, those kind of things. I mean, my famous story is I have a patient who I met in the 19, late 1980s who was a marathon runner. And he tore his ACL with a, a fluke injury at home that was unrelated. But all he does is run distance. And he talked to me about, hey, I don't want to do ball sports. I don't want to do agility sports. I'm not a big hiker. I just hot, like high mileage asphalt running. Um, and I said, sure, you know, let's try it. See what happens. And I saw him probably five years ago for a different issue. And I said, hey, you know, would you mind if I get an x-ray on your knee? I want to see what's going on and just, you know, update that. And he looked great. I mean, there were no arthritic changes. He hadn't had any instability. He was coping simply because he wasn't doing activities that he needed an ACL with. So the ACL, the anterior cruciate ligament, is one of four lig ligaments in the knee that can cause potentially cause problems. There are also um, problems with meniscus, with the meniscus, which is also which is kind of a, a cushioning element of the knee. Yeah, the menisci are C-shaped um, cartilages separate from the joint cartilage that are like the lip of a dish. They support the edges of the joint. They take about a third of the load that each knuckle bears in weight bearing in the knee. And then essentially they're, they're shock absorbers with a small amount of stabilizing function. But because they're shock absorbers, just like a shock in a car, they can wear, wear out or rip or tear or get injured. And again, this is the sort of thing that sometimes if there's a tear, sometimes people notice it, sometimes they don't, sometimes you fix it, and sometimes you don't, kind of depending upon what type of activities people want to participate in and the severity of it. Activities and the tear itself. I mean, these tears can occur in any conceivable geometry and location on the meniscus. And for example, a horizontal tear, which is a tear like you're slicing a bagel and just literally slicing uh, a portion of the meniscus so it's almost like a mouth, very often patients can tolerate that and go on with life with no change in arthritis and no significant change in function. Now they're not playing for the NBA, um, but they're doing recreational sports, they're working out, they're active, they can ride a bike around the world. I mean there's lots of activities you can do and never have symptoms. So those are the type of people that we try not to operate on unless they're having pain that's, and that's frustrating for the patient in terms of not doing the things they want to do. When we think about the knee, we have to think about the other parts of um, the body. We have to think about maybe whether the, the muscles, maybe the hamstrings aren't quite right, maybe the, the gluteus muscles aren't quite right. How do you, when you're doing an exam on a patient, walk me through your kind of mental process? Well, the mental process actually backs up to the history. So taking a good history and listening to what the problem is, how active was the patient, what is it they're trying to do, what are they really describing? And, you know, it may be a knee symptom, but as you listen to it, it's, it's clear that, you know, maybe something else could be going on. So you watch, I'll, t I'll have a patient walk down the hall and just watch, how are they using their feet? How are they using their ankles? How are they using their hips? Um, we test uh, their joint mobility, we test their joint strength um, above and below the knee itself. 
um, just because these all uh, can be a big factor. And just like we were talking about with the ACL and, and hip weakness and lack of hip control, um, very often standard old kneecap pain, housemaid's knee, or uh, very common sort of teenage girl malady where you knees track a little bit abnormally and get pain in the front of the knee, hip strengthening can make a huge difference in, in those symptoms. So it's just one example of how the knee bone is sort of connected to the hip bone, et cetera. What I've noticed in my own experience with physical therapy is that, and, and other modalities is that orthopedics and sports medicine have increasingly been borrowing from various um, other practices. You know, the physical therapists that I have seen, it's not just exercises, it's not just flexibility work. She's actually doing some hands-on manipulation of my joint, you know. So it, it's, this is interesting that this that there has been this evolution that you're you're able to say oh well this works over here so let's bring it in and use it over here to get the patient better. Yeah, I, I've seen that as well. That you know the good therapists now are very hands on, um, and it seems to make a difference. It makes a difference in terms of appropriate um, mobility of all the tissues in a complicated joint. It makes a difference in terms of flexibility preventing injury. It makes a difference in terms of you know, particularly for me as a surgeon, the cases that I send to a physical therapist, they're at risk for scar tissue. And scar tissue very often can be prevented by a knowledgeable um, physical therapist that can sense when that's working, when it's happening, and loosen that up with hands-on work. Um, and there's a whole subculture of um, there are all these semi-medieval smooth metal tools that are used um, to really literally um, distend and stretch out some of these tissues very aggressively um, that that is a real science and it's made a real difference um, particularly with soft tissue injuries like uh, IT band tendonitis which is a common common running uh, malady the kneecap we talked about Achilles tendonitis etc cetera, etc cetera. Um, but yes I, I think that certainly is a field that has has uh, grown within the within the culture of physical therapists they're also using things like um, ultrasound and electrical current and I mean it's, it's really been amazing to see what types of things are being brought in to accelerate tissue healing Yep. Which is, is kind of different than, I guess, when I was first a medical student, the whole idea was rice. It was rest, ice, compression, and elevation, some of which seems like it still works in some situations, but not always and not in every situation. Yeah, I mean, that, that's sort of the mantra for an acute injury. But 10 days later, okay, where do we go from here? And rice isn't really going to be as helpful for that. And that's, again, that's where a good therapist can be invaluable in terms of recognizing how hard to push a patient, how, you know, what's a good pain, what's a bad pain, what what mobility is going to be a step forward, and what pushing and pain mobility is going to create enough pain and inflammation that's a step backwards and going to lead to scar tissue, for example. So uh, it's a tremendous art. I, I don't really understand how they do it as well as they do it. Um, and I really appreciate it just because it is a little bit of a mystery to me. But I can tell you that I, you know, there are a number of really qualified people in this town and in this state that make a huge difference in terms of 
you know, you take the same patient with the same malady or the same surgery, and you can get totally 180 degree different results based on how they're treated and recovery. And I'm, I'm a huge utilizer of physical therapy. I know there's doctors that with routine, for example, knee arthroscopies, they'll give the patient some home exercises and off they go and they never see them again. And some of those people do, do great. But I get to see the people that didn't do great who come to me and say, hey, what happened? And, you know, I find just anecdotally and in my own experience that PT is invaluable. I have two siblings that went into orthopedics, which, of course, you know, I have nine brothers and sisters and many of us are doctors. But two of them happen to be orthopedic doctors, which I find fascinating because one is a shoulder specialist and one is doing a sports medicine fellowship. It's, it's a remarkably difficult um, field to actually get into. It is a very competitive field, and it has just, it's just blown up over the last, I would say, 20 years or so. Certainly in the last 10 years. I mean, it, it's been so popular that, therefore, it's become so competitive. The good part for me being on the other side that I'm in it is some tremendously qualified people are, are making it through and really bringing... Um, a depth of knowledge and integrity, which is um, really nice to see. It's, um, but, you know, sports, as I said earlier, are, are much more um, uh, ubiquitous now, it seems, um, particularly through the ages, younger patients, but also older patients. You know, you can kid and say weekend warriors or whatever, but, um, you know, people are doing more activities much later into their life. And this is all part of sports medicine, and so it's easy to understand the appeal. What was your appeal? I the greatest satisfaction for me, um, you know, number one, I understood it because I was an athlete, um, or am still sort of an athlete. Uh, but more importantly, the satisfaction of helping people, you know, getting somebody back into the level of competition or even at a higher level than they were before they were injured or before they developed symptoms. Um, the smile on that person's face, you know, shake of the hand at the final visit and, and the gratefulness. I mean, that's what makes me go to work every morning. So you describe yourself as was an athlete, maybe still you still are an athlete. What was your past and what is your, your present? Um, I was a big skier. I was a collegiate ski racer. Uh, wintertime was important for me. But, you know, all that I was baseball, football. Um, I did a lot of cycling. Um, and some of these things have just taken, I'm still active with skiing and on ski patrol and things like that. But obviously I've got a real job, so I can't do it uh, anywhere nearly as much as I, as I want to and I probably need to. You also have worked with the U.S. ski team. I do. So tell me what that's like to be living here in Maine and also working with the U.S. ski team. What, what types of, um, well, first of all, are there different injuries at a lower level than there are at a higher level of competition? Um, that that's a complex answer. I'm, the um, and again, I've seen some huge. I've been traveling with the U.S. ski team since 1989, and the level of science uh, has increased to the point that. Um, these athletes are just in tremendous shape when they used to be just kind of getting in shape by skiing and I'm exaggerating a little bit but um, the conditioning the workout 
they're working year round. They take it seriously. You don't have to tell them at the end of the day when we've been up on the hill for six hours that they then go to the gym and lift and just incredibly motivated and in incredibly good shape. And, you know, male and female across the board, there's been a huge increase in interest in that. And that's frankly why the U.S. has been such a power in skiing in the last decade. I mean, there have been some real stars that have worked through the science of performance um, in terms of skiing specific. Uh, conditioning and you know it's been fun to watch that so the problem with that is that they're now competing at such a high level of, of you know speed and efficiency that when they do get hurt when they do crash it's usually a bad one we've also had some success with Olympians coming from our state which is kind of interesting considering that you know we have a relatively small population and we're relatively high up on the coast what do you attribute that to well, um, well, with skiing, obviously, the mountains, so um, that's an easy one. There's a lot of exposure. Skiing is difficult in the east, um, a lot of ice, a lot of conditions that are very similar to what racing is like all the time. Um, so we've seen a lot of New Englanders. I mean, currently there's a girl from New Hampshire on the team. Um, Kirsten Clark was from Raymond, Maine, um, who you may be referring to. So I think part of that is just being exposed to some really good performance-related mountains locally. Um, but um, it depends on the sport. You take a summer sport like baseball, we have a hard time with that versus teams that are playing you know, 365 outside down in Florida all year. Um, but the winter sports, I think we tend to do well. Water sports, we tend to do well. Um, and then any indoor sports, it's a wash. I remember when we brought Julia Kluke in and interviewed her, um, she essentially was kind of alone in her sport. She, she came down and did a tryout thing here in Portland for the luge, and she got the bug. And she really had to be very independent and go off, and her family supported her. And basically, this, this became her life. And I wonder if there's also some sort of work ethic that that also Maine is familiar with, that even if you're not, you don't have a big mountain of skiers to ski with you, but maybe there's some frame of mind? I, you know, I think that may be true. Just New Englanders tend to be sort of, just because you're dealing with adversity and weather and conditions, you know, there's a, there's a little bit of a... Of a chin-up hardness uh, to drive that. Um, but I, I do see that the whole family commitment that you referred to, you know, that it's not just the athlete, it's the whole family saying, okay, we all need to get behind you to make this thing happen, not just financially, but in terms of emotional support and time and, you know, every weekend going to tournaments or going this, this, and there. Um, and I think that that's some of the, the main spirit. Um, you know that the the sort of family unity and the um, the sense of really protecting what's around you and trying to achieve your goals. So you have you've been in the business for how long now? A long time. Long time. Okay, good. We'll go with that. And you'll probably be in the business maybe another another ten years anyway. Ten years anyway. God willing. Yep. What do you hope to see happen over that period of time? In terms of what? Um, well, I guess you can answer the question any way you want. I was thinking about sports medicine, but, you know, it, how, how do you hope that things will move along? Well, in, you know, my first response to that is, okay, what about in my field? And there is just so much exciting um, research that's going on with what we call biologics. 
uh, where uh, you're recreating structures either through stem cells or viral engineering. And instead of us using, for example, uh, you know, a cadaver graft to replace an ACL, um, using a form of silk that is then impregnated with a virally engineered um, you know, collagen-producing virus, and you, know, you make an ACL without having to rob Peter to pay Paul, uh, that, oh, by the way, it's stronger than a native ACL and has all better qualities. And, you know, meniscal transplants right now are all we have to try to replace a meniscus. But in the lab, there are sponge um, scaffolds that can be um, impregnated again with the appropriate cells to grow a meniscus within that structure. Um, so, you know, I would not be surprised that, um, you know, in the next 20 years, just as, as we've seen in cardiology where things have got progressively less invasive, that who knows? I mean, there may be a shot that you get to create a new ACL. Um, you know, regrow joint surface, total joints, joint replacements may be a thing of the past. Um, this is where all the really exciting stuff is in, in terms of my field. Well, I'm hoping that my brother and my sister, the orthopedic surgeons, will, will be able to put a few more years in after you're done, and, and we'll see, see some of those changes take place. I'm sure they will. Link, how can people find out about the work that you're doing with Maine Medical Partners, orthopedics and sports medicine? Um, Maine Medical Center has a website, obviously, where we're listed. Um, we're everywhere. I mean, we're, we're on the sidelines covering games. We're doing um, performance labs. We're setting up a concussion clinic. So there's all sorts of resources that are available to high school kids and colleges um, very easily, but certainly uh, the website or uh, good old phone book and Google can do it. Well, I appreciate the time that you've taken to um, come in and talk to us about sports medicine and the work that you're doing. I especially appreciate the work that you did on my knee because I will say it was this was a cartilage transplant, so this was no easy and short fix. This was something you and I worked on together over the course of maybe 18 months, I think. It was unique. It was, you were the first person I remember um, that we did as an outpatient, so it was usually a two- or three-day stay in the hospital. Yeah. Well, you did great. Well, so did you, and I'm not <laughs> limping, so that's good. We've been speaking with Dr. Lincoln Avery, who is an orthopedic surgeon at Maine Medical Partners Orthopedics and Sports Medicine, also the division leader over there. Thanks so much for keeping us all active and healthy here in the state of Maine. Thank you, Lisa, for having me. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, whose 15 years of experience and unique perspective on the industry puts creativity and enjoyment into house hunting. Specializing in properties in Southern Maine, Mary will work with you to get to know your wants, desires, and dreams, and make sure that the home you move into is as close to perfect as it gets, and she'll make sure you have fun along the way. Because while moving is one of the more stressful events you'll encounter, finding the right home doesn't have to be. If you're looking to buy or sell a home in Southern Maine, be in touch with Mary and find out more about why, when it comes to buying and selling real estate, a good time really can be had by all. Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay. Your connection to living right. Go to marylibby.com for more information. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Berlin City Honda, where the car buying experience is all about easy. After all, life is complicated enough, and buying a car shouldn't be. That's why the Berlin City Honda team goes the extra mile by pre-discounting all their vehicles and focus their efforts on being open, honest, and all about getting you on the road. In fact, Berlin City recently won the 2015 Women's Choice Award, a strong testimony to their ability to deliver a different kind of car buying experience. 
Berlin City Honda of Portland. Easy. It's how buying a car should be. Go to BerlinCityHondaME.com for more information. Listeners of the show know that the University of New England is doing great work in the healthcare field and specifically in the field of physical therapy. Today we have with us two individuals who are representing the physical therapy department at the University of New England. The first is Dr. Kirsten Buchanan, who is an assistant clinical professor in the Department of Physical Therapy at the University of New England, and Matt Kraft, who is a third year doctor of physical therapy department student at the University of New England. Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So I I love the idea um, that I recently heard you've been engaged in, and that is preventing ACL tears in young soccer players. And I think specifically women, but I could be wrong on this one. So, you know, tell me about that if that's so. Um, Your ACL is your knee. It's the anterior cruciate ligament. I have seen in my own practice increasing numbers of ACL tears. My own daughter was a soccer player and lacrosse player who had an ACL tear. Mm. So it's kind of, it's become a little bit of a public health issue, actually. If we want to keep young athletes fit and healthy and active, um, we need to keep their knees in good shape and we need to keep them uninjured. So how did you... Kirsten, Dr. Buchanan, how did you get interested in this? Yeah, well, I think that, you know, as you probably know, girls are two to eight more times more likely to rupture their ACL. And so this is something that um, there are programs out there, preventative programs, that um, can help to decrease the risk of this ACL. And so they're warm-up programs. And so that's we decided that this would be a great community outreach program through the University of New England to try to get the research that's out there and bring it to the community. And Matt, what's your relationship to this um, research project? To this research project? Um, well, I was a soccer player growing up. Um, I've seen many ACL injuries. Um, working in some of my clinical placements through this program, I've seen a lot of ACL repairs. Um, and you know, it's it's a preventable injury and we see way too many injuries uh, of this kind, and I, I think uh, any work that we can do in the realm of prevention would be fantastic. So back, back me up a little bit, because obviously I, I know more about this than perhaps many people do, but I'm not sure everybody out there knows exactly what an ACL does and, and why it's important in the knee and how it actually gets torn. Right. There are, there's four major ligaments um, in your knee that sta- helps to stabilize your knee. And your anterior cruciate ligament, or the ACL, is um, one of the cruciates, so one of the ones that crosses in your knee. And it helps to, like we said, to stabilize. And it can be at a risk when people um, land in a more stiff way or in place, place more pressure on that knee. So the way you move um, can really depend on how much pressure is going to be going or, or force is going to be going through that ACL. And, um, and we're trying to help people move in a way that decreases that uh, decreases the risk that it's going to be injured. Yeah, ACL injuries are usually um, a non-contact injury, um, like a plant and pivot sort of thing. People will hear a pop and then their knee will go out. Um, so the, uh, the anterior cruciate ligament is responsible for preventing um, forward translation of the tibia, which means like a sliding forward of the tibia on the femur. Um, and it, it's responsible for a, a decent percentage of that prevention. So if we can strengthen 
the surrounding mu musculature and supplement that with good body mechanics. Hopefully we can take a lot of that load off of the ACL. So when I'm thinking about possibilities for ACL injuries, it would be if you're on the soccer field or the lacrosse field and you stop suddenly and shift in a different direction than your body was originally going in. That's exactly right. That's ex it's that, that pivot uh, plant and, and, um, and change direction that oftentimes, just like Matt said, it's you hear a pop and um, before you know it, they're on the ground. Yeah, it's also a very common injury in uh, basketball mm -hmm. as well. And what about skiing? Skiing, definitely. Um, although there, there are a lot more factors involved in, in skiing. Um, but yeah, since your, your foot is fixed in that boot uh, and the rest of your body moves, yeah, the ACL is, is definitely at risk there. So it's not just the kids who are playing sports in Maine. It's also anyone who's out there really being active, possibly on the slopes. It's true. I think that in the, the group that we're really looking at and targeting are the girls because the girls are, are more likely, yes, in skiing, I think it's um, not necessarily just girls who might get injured um, because you do have, like Matt was talking about, sort of this, your foot in a boot and a long lever arm of your ski that can cause a great deal of force coming up um, and, and put a lot of uh, pressure or force on that ACL. Um, what we're really looking at are the soccer athletes and the lacrosse athletes and the basketball athletes so that if we can help them move in a way that can prevent it um, or, or better alignment, that's going to help prevent the, this sort of injury from happening. What is it about the way that girls' bodies are formed that causes them to be more at risk? It's a great question. They've looked research-wise to see if is it something about a girl's body um, that is is it you know a hip ang a hip width um, situation, or do they tend to have flatter feet that cause this problem, or is it a hormone piece of things, or what is it? And there's really no conclusive research that shows that it's one of those things. Um, what the research has shown is that the way they move can make a difference. So there was research that was, like I said, it was done 15 years ago that looked at um, if we can get girls to to land from a jump in, in a more um, absorbing more shock, being able to land without so much of a stiff knee, uh, that is something that can, they did a prospective study and showed they took thousands of girls in California, in the uh, Southern California, and they had one group who um, they just did a traditional warm-up. They went ahead and ran around the field and did some jumping jacks and things like that. And they took the other group and they did this injury prevention program, this PEP program, um, which stands for Prevent Injury uh, Enhanced Performance. And so they, and it's a combination of strengthening, um, plyometrics, flexibility, and uh, it's a 20-minute warm-up type of a thing, and it's fairly basic uh, exercises that you can do, but it's about landing softly and absorbing shock and teaching them about good alignment while they're doing that. And, um, and they found in this study that of the thousands that they, that they studied, the ones who did the PEP program were um, significantly less um, uh, at risk for this ACL injury. Um, so we thought... Everybody should be doing this. <laughs> and so who are you working with now? I know you're working with Yarmouth High School because my daughter's been um, working with your program. And, and where else? So right now we are working with the, with the JV and varsity from the Yarmouth uh, team and also with the U13 girls, the travel uh, team, the Yarmouth Colts. 
And um, we figure that's a target group. If we can really get that U13, U14 girls to start moving in the correct way, um, by the time they're in high school, hopefully you don't see anybody that has any kind of an ACL tear. And I understand that uh, as part of this program, you actually came in and you evaluated the biomechanics of each girl. Describe that process for me. Um, well, uh, in our motion analysis lab at UNE, we had the girls do um, some jumping tests. So we'd measure um, with a force plate and uh, surrounding halo cameras, just basically uh, the direction of force on the ground going through their legs um, and just how they moved when they jumped, how they landed. And then we also took some, um, some measurements of... Um, well, some strength tests, some foot drop tests, just to see uh, if they have flat feet or if they have fixed arches, that sort of thing. Um, how far they could um, squat down to the ground without lifting their heels off the ground. Um, just very basic physical therapy assessment um, data. And the hope is that from this, we'd be able, UNE has this really incredible motion analysis lab, and it's one of the only ones in the state. And it's just this really, like Matt was saying, it's got these great cameras um, all around, and you can get 3D motion. So they put these reflective markers on them. It's what, how they do animation. And the girls then, they jumped off this box onto the force plate, like Matt was saying, and we can get a snapshot of what they look like in 3D. And then we couple that with their static evaluation. And from that, we get a sense of like, okay, who, what, what do they look like um, coming in? And then the hope is by adding and doing this PEP program that maybe some of the forces that they land with or maybe some of the um, malalignment sort of situations or that they maybe drop their knees into the inside or um, that they flex too much at the hip or something. Once going through the program, perhaps they'll be able to, we'll bring them in again at the end of the season and have them jump again. And the hope is that we see some changes, um, that there's less force and that they're, we always tell them to land softly like a ninja. Um, and so that hopefully we're seeing softer landings and more so shock absorbing and things like that. I know that when I see patients in my office, I evaluate the entire chain. So it's if you have somebody with some knee problems, then I'm also looking at their hip and their ankle and looking at their lower back, and even to some extent, sort of the upper part of their body. And it, it seems as though that that's a real focus in physical therapy is not just to focus on the, the part of the body that is damaged or um, not working as well, but to look at the entirety of the person. I think that's vital. Um, I think you hit it right on the head. I think you have to look at the strength of the hip. The hip strength is so huge for these girls to be able to have that hip strength. When you look at some of the ACL injuries that take place, they take place more often in the third and fourth quarter of a game or um, you know, the second half when fatigue is starting to, to kick in. So having that strength from the hips on down and then also having stability from the feet on up is important as well. Um, so both of those. The knee is just the unfortunate joint that is stuck between the feet and the hips. <laughs> so Matt, you were a soccer player. I was, yeah. And you played actually at a pretty high level in Massachusetts where you're from. Uh, yeah, yeah, uh, up, in, up through high school. So 
tell me what types of work was being done when you were a soccer player as far as biomechanics and strength, flexibility, endurance. What types of work was being done to uh, protect knees? To protect knees specifically, practically nothing. Um, it was very old school, um, you know, just regular warm up, run around the field, um, just drills, mostly soccer related drills. And there was not a huge focus on proper mechanics. Um, and so what types of injuries were you seeing? Um, whole manner of types. Um, I was, I would mostly break bones. Um, like I, <laughs> I broke my toe three times. Um, fortunately, twice it was my left foot, so uh, I could I could still play pretty well. Um, and but I did see a, a fair number of ACL injuries. Um, lots of lots of sprained ankles. Um, some um, some torn ligaments around the ankles. Um, and concussions too, which is a whole other discussion. Um, yeah. But um, I, I think some more more work is being done in that realm. Um, so the the things that you were seeing when you were playing soccer versus the things that you're seeing now as a physical therapy student have those changed? Not tremendously. Um, I I don't think that a lot of preventative programs like the one that we're implementing now are really in practice. Um, so we're still seeing a lot of preventative injuries out there um, that, you know, with proper body mechanics, proper stretching, strengthening, and just general awareness can be prevented, but they're, they're, it's not happening. Kirsten, you also, you're a runner and you've worked with the Boston Marathon and you've worked with Beach to Beacon. Are you seeing similar types of uh, preventable injuries in runners? Maybe not as an ACL injury, but maybe overuse injuries? Yeah, I think that there's, you know, certainly in runners, there's all kinds of flexibility programs that you can implement. Um, preventative medicine, I think, is just, it is the future of medicine. And um, so I think that in physical therapy is one of those areas that we need to look into preventative ways to do things. And I think in running, um, there's all kinds of things. You look at flexibility programs. It's very similar, quite honestly, to some of the ACL things. It's it's about strengthening things that are weak, and it's about stretching things that are tight. And when you're younger, you get away with a lot because you have a lot more flexibility. And then as you get older, you you know you start having problems where you never used to have problems before, and you wonder why that is. So um, yes, uh, gait analysis is one of my my backgrounds and. Uh, or one of the areas that I've looked at, and, and you, people start to break down a little bit, um, and they wonder why that is. And so if you can do more preventative things, whether that be strength, whether that be flexibility, um, you can do something to help yourself. Isn't part of what you're talking about um, getting even kids, in, or maybe adults if, they're, if they haven't already had this exposure, but getting kids used to engaging in activities that are not sport-specific, but are really body-specific. And right now I wonder if we have enough youth coaches out there who are aware of the body mechanics that you're talking about. I think Matt spoke to this a little bit before, but I think that's exactly right. I think that we have a, a responsibility almost to some degree to be able to provide um, girls with this information to be able to help them um, 
stave off these injuries because, um, yeah, I think that once their knee is injured, they're more likely to develop osteoarthritis. They're more likely to have a total knee at a very early age because of all of that. So if we can do things earlier um, preventive-wise, then I think that makes a, a huge difference and helps them, uh, obviously, down the line. And once somebody has an ACL injury, they are at a much higher risk for injuring that same uh, ligament and the um, the contralateral, the other knee. Um, that's that's just what the data says. Yeah, the research shows that. So if we can help them to to decrease again, decrease that risk. Um, that's going to be huge. But I think that exercises, like you were talked about a little bit, exercises they can do, it's a lot of core stuff, you know, things that, and there are other things that they, they don't have to necessarily be doing a plank. I think that getting kids to do um, exercises that are, um, you know, paddle boarding is a great core exercise. Yeah, any kind of um, anti-rotation exercise mm-hmm. would be fantastic. Longboarding is a great core exercise. These are exercises, just getting kids out there and active um, in and doing multiple different sports as opposed to always the specialization of just one sport um, is important for them, um, important for their health, uh, I think. Matt, what is an anti-rotational exercise? (laughs) Okay, so um, your abdominal uh, muscles are in three groups. You have your rectus abdominis, which is the six-pack, the beach muscles that everybody loves. Um, You have your transversus, which kind of looks like a cummerbund. It just kind of keeps everything tucked away in there, keeps your guts in place. And then you have your obliques, which kind of go off at an oblique angle, which is where they get their name. And they um, they allow you to uh, twist, but really their, most, their main function is to keep your core steady while uh, a rotation force is being put on your body. So... Paddleboarding, as uh, Kirsten said, is an anti-rotation exercise. You're keeping your trunk stable while you're paddling away from you um, off to the left or the right. Uh, So that force is trying to provide um, a torque on your core, um, but your obliques are resisting that. So it's an anti-rotation exercise. I'm interested in general in why physical therapy seems to have gained such um, momentum. It, it used to be, I believe, that physical therapy um, would, could be a, an undergraduate degree. And I think it still is possible to get an undergraduate degree in physical therapy. But Matt, you, you're getting a doctorate in physical therapy, and UNE really has um, put a lot of emphasis on their doctoral program. Why is this? Um, well, for one thing, um Many states are now uh, doing direct access to PT. Um, So you don't need a referral from your physician anymore. You can just go directly to your physical therapist to receive treatment. Um, And in that instance, um, it's preferred that uh, your provider has a doctorate degree. Um, And there's there's a lot more information coming out. Uh, PTs are doing a lot more work, doing uh, wound care, which we can PTs have been doing for a, a long time, but um, just the scope of practice is broadening so much that um, the amount that we're learning in school really merits this uh, doctorate level degree. And Kirsten, why was it important for the University of New England to begin offering this program? I think it was, it's just, it's being able to 
provide the students in the in the population with a degree that is going to uh, match, I guess, what their needs are. So um, just trying to stay abreast with the the national uh, trend and and what you know, like Matt was saying as well, where the needs are going to be for direct access. Um, that's where we need to be as well. Each of you has an interesting background that wasn't necessarily PT-related. Um, Kirsten, you graduated with a BA in German from Colby. And um, Matt, you actually ended up having a, a degree in media studies, as, or a minor in media studies, and an English major. Can you explain that a little bit? I think that you can, it just goes to show that you can come, you can come to physical therapy from a whole bunch of different angles. Uh, mine happened to be a German uh, background and I was able to take a true liberal arts uh, education in the way that I was able to take a couple of semesters and go to Austria and to Germany and to um, have this wonderful education and take other classes while I was also actually doing sort of pre-medical um, classes, but I didn't have to concentrate in that. I wasn't a bio major. And so for me, it was, it was a wonderful uh, undergraduate experience. Took a year off afterwards and took a couple of prere prerequisites before PT school, but that, I knew that physical therapy was always the direction that I wanted to go in. Um, so German hasn't necessarily been handy in physical therapy. That use, I use it perhaps occasionally, but um, not so, so often. I'm not practicing physical therapy in Germany uh, at this point anyway. I could, I guess, but, um, but yeah, it gave me a great broad uh, liberal arts background, which I loved. Um, yeah, I think mine was a little bit more of a circuitous route. I had no idea that I was going to be getting into physical therapy when I was uh, pursuing an English major. Um, but you know, med medicine has kind of been a passion of mine. Um, I think my Latin background definitely helped me out with anatomy. Um, yeah, I, I, don't, I, I don't know. I, uh, I had toyed with the idea of med school. Um, and then I, I took some time to just sort of travel around the country, um, went to uh, Ecuador, uh, went, came back and hiked the Appalachian Trail. And I think somewhere around Pennsylvania, I decided that med school wasn't for me, <laughs> um, but found my way back to uh, physical therapy because I'm really, I'm really interested in body structure and function. And I think this is, this is a good um, niche for me. It's a wonderful profession. You get a chance to, to chat with people while you exercise with them at the same time, and uh, it's just a great way to be. It also seems as if that what you were talking about, things like um, biomechanical analysis and gait analysis and the technology that's now available to do these sorts of things that it used to be we would do just by you know, visually, we, when I see patients in the office, I analyze their gait by watching them walk down the hall. Mm -hmm. And to have the availability of the sort of the next level up of tools must have really be increasing your um, the likelihood that you will be able to help people. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things, just being able to, like we said, the, the motion analysis lab has these 3D, so we can do the 3D um, 
uh, evaluation of somebody's jumping or walking or, or running. Um, in the lab, one of the things I do actually is see patients uh, for runners primarily, but it's mostly a 2D analysis. But we just, by getting a camera on people and being able to slow it down, you can really start to see the biomechanics. And with, like you said, the advent of all this technology out there, you can get your iPhone on somebody and be able to slow it down well enough and really start to see these movements, both in walking and running, and um, and help them, help them be able to say, I can see this might be an area of weakness, or this might be, I, do you see how you're sort of bringing your foot out in this direction? Maybe we can correct that in a certain way that will keep you from irritating your knee or whatever it might be. So all this technology is wonderful um, to be able to use. After listening to this, I'm sure that people will have some interest in the work that you're doing with ACL rupture and um, other sorts of injury prevention. So how can people find out about the University of New England program? Um, certainly, if they have interest in, in having us help them with an ACL prevention program, not sure exactly how to get it started or what to do, emailing me is the best way to, to do that. Um, that's the kbuchanan at une.edu. Um, happy to help bring people in the right direction. There's some great things um, online that they can look at, uh, you know, some programs that they, might be all that they need, or it might be such that they want one of the students um, to come out and help them with uh, a program for whether that be a practice or two or a whole season like we're doing with the JV Varsity. We're happy to do it. So that's probably the best way to get in touch. And the University of New England website, Matt, is? Uh, une.edu. Well, I appreciate the work that you're doing in this area. Um, obviously, it would have been great if my middle child had had access to the ACL prevention program, having rehabbed herself through an ACL rupture. But, um, you know, you have to, we keep learning as a medical profession and we keep moving on and we keep offering more to the next generation. So I, I think it's great that you're doing this. And I thank you for doing this for the girls in Yarmouth. And hopefully this will continue to spread out with, you know, rippling effects throughout the state of Maine. We've been speaking with Dr. Kirsten Buchanan and Matt Kraft from the University of New England. Thank you so much for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Love Maine Radio is brought to you by Mac Page an accounting and management consulting firm that believes the path to success is paved by their ability to build lasting, meaningful relationships with their clients. Mac Page, accessible, approachable, and accountable. For more information, go to macpage.com. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 219, Keeping Knees Healthy. Our guests have included Dr. Link Avery, Dr. Kirsten Buchanan, and Matt Kraft. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see my running, travel, food, and wellness photos as Bountiful One on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love, Maine Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belial. I hope that you have enjoyed our Keeping Knees Healthy show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is made possible with the support of Maine Magazine, Berlin City Honda, Boone's Fish House and Oyster Room, Mac Page, 
Mary Libby of Remax by the Bay, and Apothecary by Design. Audio production and original music have been provided by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Kelly Chase. Our assistant producer is Emily Davis. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Susan Grisanti, and Dr. Lisa Bellisle. For more information on our host's production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, visit us at lovemainradio.com.